Well, if you have a Bible, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, Psalm 18, more specifically, Psalm 18. We will continue our study, our 17th sermon through the first book of the five book, five books of Psalms. We will continue that study here in Psalm 18. And I'm going to argue from the outset that Psalm 18 is David's magnum opus. Do you know what that word means? Magnum opus? Here's the definition. A large and important work of art, music, or literature, especially regarded as one of the most important works of an artist or a writer. The magnum opus, one of the most important works of David's art, music, or literature. In fact, this is both poetry, so it's an art piece of art. It's, it's music and it's literature. It's all of the above. And David, who wrote many of the Psalms and many of the Psalms in book one are all attributed to David with the exception of the first two and then Psalm 10. And here we have the longest of David's Psalms. That's the first reason why I would say this is a great work of art. Great as in it's long. 50 verses. Third longest psalm in all of the psalms. Psalm 119 gets first place. That one is not attributed to David. Psalm 78, second place. Again, not to David. But Psalm 18 is the third longest and it's David's longest. So perhaps it's his magnum opus, a great work of music and art and literature. Second reason I'll give you for this being important in David's writing music ministry. If you were to read 2 Samuel 22, you would find Psalm 18 repeated almost 100% verbatim. I think that whoever was telling us the story of David, whoever that author was in 1 and 2 Samuel, thought, hey, here's a good way to sum up the life of David at the end of this book. And we're going to then put Psalm 18 in that story. It's a good, good reason then maybe to say that Psalm 18 is a magnum opus kind of work of David's Psalms. Third and final reason why I think David's Psalm 18 should have special significance and maybe is worthy of two weeks of sermons. Huh? How about that? Two weeks? That's the plan, by the way. Third reason. Right at the front of Psalm 18 is the historical heading. Do you all see that? The all capitals. That's actually a part of the Hebrew manuscripts, the earliest copies that we have of Psalm, 100, uh, Psalm 18. And anytime you see of David or these other designations, you can know that this was very, very early on and perhaps by the author himself. So look how long it is. It's telling you that this is to the choir master. It's a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, Psalm 18. So there's my three reasons why I think you should pay attention this morning. If you care at all about the Bible, you care all of, at all about this sermon series in, in the book of Psalms. 
I think this is a, a big deal. And so we'll spend one week introducing you to this song, and I'm entitling it A Song About David's Deliverance. And then right toward the end of the sermon, I'm going to give you a little teaser about how really this is not ultimately about David, is it? And next week, if you come back and we're all here and alive, we will consider how Psalm 18 is a song about Jesus' deliverance. An entire sermon dedicated to the greater David, Jesus Christ, from Psalm 18. That sermon might be better than this one. But in order to make sense of next week's sermon, I think you need this one first. So let's not be in a big rush or a hurry. It's God's word. It's good for us. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to do so first by telling you the big idea up front. It's a big, long psalm. And then I'm going to give you the outline structure as we read along. 50 verses. So here's the big idea. David's passionate praise is the result of three things. David's passionate praise in Psalm 18 is the result of perfection, promises, and protection. I think that's what you'll see as we read through this psalm, and it's going to have an A, B, C, B, A structure. Because it's a great, magnificent work of art. It is very artistically designed in what's called a mirrored chiasm. And so it starts with praise, it ends with praise, A and A. The beginning and the end are bookends. Then in the middle section, you have B and B are protection, meditations and poetic reflections on God's protection of David. But the very center of the psalm is verses 20 to 30, and I'll show this again as we read through it, is this contrast between David's perfection and God's perfection. Some of you might already be getting nervous. We're talking about a human being that's perfect? You'll have to just listen and hear me out. But first, let's read it. And remember this big idea. David's passionate praise in Psalm 18 is the result of perfection, promises, and protection. Verses 1 to 3. David's passionate praise is because of protection. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. That's the end of the first section. Passionate praise because of God's saving him from his enemies. Section two, this is a long one, but it's beautiful. Follow along as I read 4 to 19, David's protection from God. Protection that God delivers from his enemies. Verse 4. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord to my God. I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked, and the foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth 
from him. He bowed the heavens and he came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness, his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. And he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils, he sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Why would God delight in David? Answer, section C. David's perfection. This is the first five verses of this middle section of the psalm. So follow along, verses 20 to 24. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless or I was perfect before him. And I kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. Now God's perfection. Verses 25 to 30. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the perfect or blameless man, you show yourself perfect and blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure, and with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. For you save a humbled people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness, for by you I can run against a troop. And by my God, I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. We're 30 verses in, just to make sure we didn't all get lost. Verse 30 really much sums up our big idea, doesn't it? The Lord God is perfect. His ways are utter perfection. And this is demonstrated by the word of the Lord that proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Did you forget the big idea yet? David's passionate praise is the result of perfection, promises of words that prove true, and protection, a shield and a refuge. Let's finish reading, though. We've got a little bit more to go. Section B, 
mirroring what we just read about God's deliverance and protection, we have a further poetic meditation on God rescuing David. And it's from verse 31 to verse 45. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God, the God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless? He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand supported me and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back till they were consumed. I thrust them through so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet, for you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, and those who hated me I destroyed. They cried for help, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as dust before the wind. I cast them out like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with the people. You made me the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners came cringing to me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. Back to section A, praise. Passionate praise because of God's promise and protection. That's the final series of verses starting in verse 46 to the end. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock, exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and subdued peoples under me, who rescued me from my enemies. Yes, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from the man of violence. For this, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing to your name great salvation he brings to his king and show steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal truth on all of our hearts. So one more time, maybe not the last time, but once more. The big idea, did you all see it? Did it just flow out of the text as I just read it? David is passionately praising God, and it's the result of perfection as the center of the psalm, that's on the basis of the promises of God for David's protection. And that's Psalm 18 in a nutshell, as best as I can do at this point of my life and study of God's word, I hope it's helpful for you to take away Psalm 18, not just as a little sermon today, but all through this week, I challenge each of you, read Psalm 18 once a day. Read it before you go to bed tonight. Maybe read it tomorrow morning. We're gonna be in it again next week. It would be good for us to, as a church community, use Psalm 18 to strengthen our own soul with praise, passionate praise, like David. So let's just have a few introductory kind of comments about how that could apply to us throughout this week as we learn about David and his deliverance. First, David's passionate praise. Let's just consider that for a moment. I want you to look at verse 1. 
And I want you to notice the way that the verse, the psalm begins in verse 1. I love you, O Lord, my strength. I love you, Lord. I love you. He's bursting out in song. He's bursting out in song because we just read in the historical setting of when he said these words. It was when he was just delivered from death as he was being pursued by his enemies. Have you ever been close to death? Have you ever had a moment, whether in a car or some sort of incident, where your heart starts racing and beating, and you're like, that was a close one. And then you have the moment afterwards to just take stock and inventory of like, I could have been dead, like a goner, no more. And then you realize the like just millimeter of something that could have been different or the timing of just a second to or here and like God has graciously preserved your life. Is it no wonder then that he begins by just saying, God, I love you. Now, am I adding too much into this when I say it that way? I mean, what if he's just very casual, nonchalant? Love you, Lord. Or is this passionate praise? I'm arguing passionate praise. I'm arguing emphatic, all caps, exclamation points. Love you, Lord. Just want to get that out there. Now, why? Well, let me, by the help of Derek Kidner, a well, great Old Testament psalm scholar, says this. This first phrase of love that David expressed is very uncommon in the scriptures. It is impulsive, it is emotional, and in every other context that it's used, it has intensity, and normally it's of God talking about his compassionate love for the weak. I think that it's passionate prayer. I think that this is a reflection of God's love being displayed through a human that is overwhelmed. God, I love you. So I just want to start by asking, do you ever say that to God? Do you have passionate prayer as a normal rhythm of your conversations with God? Not asking for something, not confessing anything that you've done, just start out by saying, God, I love you. Or is that weird or foreign to you? Can I take it a step further? Do you passionately sing? This is a song. This is poetic artistry bursting forth from a man's heart. He's singing these words. I love you, Lord. Or is that too intense for your Christianity or religion? Friends, I want to encourage you to realize how worthy God is to be praised, as it says in verse 3. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. He just saved my life. Oh God, you are good and worthy of all affection, all adoration, all praise. If this sounds strange to you, maybe you're here again today as a guest or visitor. Maybe you're not used to hearing loud preachers shout, I love you, Lord. Let me help make sense of this for you. The degree to which you will love the Lord your God, the way David is here, bursting in song and praise, 
will be very much dependent on the degree to which you understand yourself to be rescued. If you think you've been rescued from just a little bit, then your praise will probably be little. But if you sense overwhelming indebtedness to the God who has saved and rescued, and you realize he did that because of his affection for you, his delight in you, as David says in verse 19, in you, maybe put it this way, you could know intellectually, Christians go around and believe that God saves people from their sins. Great, good for you. I'm glad that that's working for you. What if you understood that God saved you from your sins? Now we're talking about something entirely different. This would be a reason why Christians sing passionately. And it's not weird. It's entirely appropriate. It's wonderful, isn't it? When our musicians pull off from the instruments and all you do is hear the loud singing voices around you. I mean, we've been outside for the last month. And now that we're back indoors, hearing the reverberating sound of people that sing, in Christ alone my hope is found. My brothers and sisters, I pray that you will come regularly to Sunday gatherings and sing passionately. And even if you can't hold a tune, do it anyway. Because you have been saved and rescued with what Psalm 1850 calls a great salvation. You've been saved by something great. Therefore, let's match the praise of God with the salvation that he has provided. And to the degree by which you understand what you've been saved from is the degree by which I believe you will have a life filled with passionate praise. At this point, just to illustrate this a, a bit further and then drive in a little New Testament teaching, do you all remember that story when Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house. So a Pharisee was a Jewish uh, ruler, very committed to obeying the rules of the Jewish unwritten rules. Point being, Jesus invited into this Jewish man's house. And while they're having a meal together, this woman, and she's called a woman of the city. So, I mean, just for the sake of context, like a prostitute would be an easy translation. A very known non-Jewish, non-follower of the rules, rule breaker, comes into the house and is weeping, weep, weep, where she is drenching Jesus' feet with her tears, wiping his feet with her hair. And the Pharisees in that table around the room are looking at Jesus going, oh my goodness, can you believe what this woman is doing? If Jesus were a prophet and knew who she was, we know who she is. Why doesn't he know? She is unclean. She's a sinner. Jesus, instead of sending her away, welcomes the praise and confronts the boastful, arrogant, smug, arm-folding, brow-bending look gaze at Jesus by telling them a little story and then the main point of the story just to make a long story short is that do you see this woman she has been forgiven for all of her sins because of her faith 
her faith in me. And because her sins are great, her love is great. You, though, you don't think you have too many sins to be forgiven of. So that's why when I came into the house, you hardly even washed my feet. You did hardly anything to show just adoration and respect. Do you see the principle in Psalm 18 that is further expounded upon by Jesus in Luke 7? He who has been forgiven much, rescued from much, will love much. So I want to suggest to you that the degree by which you understand the ways of God, the perfections of God, the purity of God's promises, the power of his saving arm to protect you, that will be the degree by which we and you will praise. I think that makes for a good argument for gospel-centered ministry. I know I say that a lot, but I think that the more we center our lives around the gospel and remind each other of what we have been saved from and saved for, all the more that we will become people of love. And if that's not the end goal of all that we do as a church or even as human beings, then I think we're headed in the wrong direction. How about that? How about we be a gathering of people filled with love? Sounds good. How do we get there? How do we become filled with love toward God and others? Meditating regularly on God's rescue of us, even though we are undeserving of that rescue. Which brings us to the second P. Perfection, doesn't it? So wait, in Psalm 18, the reason why David says that he is being saved and delivered and passionately praising God is on the basis of his perfection, his blamelessness, that God takes delight in him because well, he's doing really good. Did you see that in verses 20 to 24? The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanliness of my hands, he has rewarded me. And David just boldly declares, I have kept the ways of the Lord, and I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and his statutes I did not put away from me. And then he uses this word that I've translated for you, perfection, because it could easily be translated as perfection. It's the same word used in verse 30 to talk about God's perfect ways. Same exact Hebrew word. So there in verse 30, most of your English Bibles probably translate it as perfect. Now, the idea of perfect can sometimes be one of those like we're talking past each other or not connecting. So, again, to clarify, by perfect we mean whole, sound, not missing anything, not incomplete. Imagine you're making something and you get to the end of the project, you're like, no, 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 we can tinker with that more. It's it's not, it's not yet whole, it's not perfect. And then that process continues until eventually you're like, this cannot be improved upon. This is this is perfect. So whether it's an excellent cake recipe that you've perfected over 20 years, or whether it's some craft of furniture that you made with your hands, these are the sort of concepts people have when they're using these words of perfect wholeness. Like, it's just really good. That's the concept. And David's saying that that's him. Any of you find that to be troubling? Any of you think, as you've grown up going to church, think, I don't think I would ever say that about myself. Well, that's good. And honestly, you probably shouldn't. At least 
there's a bigger story at play, which is why we need two weeks for this. But for now, let's just understand it this way. This is before David has sinned with Bathsheba. This is the song that comes out when, really, as he looks at his life, I think he's not saying, well, I'm the greatest human that's ever walked the face of the earth. But I think he's saying that as I look around at what I've done in my life, I have been faithful. And it's on the basis of my faithfulness that God is delivering and being kind to me. And I don't think you need to feel nervous about that because David's life is going to clearly show this man was not blameless. That this song was written a little too soon before the end of his life. We'll get to Psalm 51 at some point. And he's going to be like, I'm a sinner. I've been a sinner since I was born. So keep that in context. But here at this point, I think we should just take his words at face value and say that he's saying, I have no regrets looking back at a lot of my life. I have been faithful to God and God's blessing me for that. Now, Derek Kidner rightly says, these words are partially true of David at this season of his life, but they are way more true of our Lord Jesus, the greater David. So we should especially read this psalm in light of Jesus. And that's what I'm encouraging you to do all week and come back next week. But for now, realize that there is a sense to which the promises of God are being given to David because of his faithfulness to the covenant. But secondarily and way more importantly, David's passionate praise is a result of his understanding God's perfection. Notice the way that David's perfection and God's perfection are in the same center section of the psalm. And especially, I liked this part. Notice verse 32. The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. Oh, there's the secret, isn't it? He's not even boasting about himself. He's stating like, look, I'm blameless at this point in my life, but I am giving credit to God for that. This is not some guy that's going around and saying, I'm perfect, guys. He's more so saying, God in his grace and kindness has equipped me and strengthened me and given me all the blessings that I do have. So I would suggest that passionate praise does not come because of the inventory you've done on your good deeds, your moral record, your achievements. Passionate praise is the overflow of realizing God's perfections, his ways, his promises. Look again at verse 30. This is the conclusion of this section about how good God is, all of his ways, starting in verse 25 all the way to 30. He's meditating on the fact that look how God is merciful to the merciful, blameless to the blameless. He, he, he shows himself pure to the pure, etc., etc. And then at the end of that, verse 30, key verse of the whole psalm, isn't this God's ways perfect then? Can you approve upon this God? His word proves true. He keeps his promises. The parallel between 30a, the first stanza, to the second is this God, his way is perfect. His word proves true. His promises have never proven false. This is a great time for us to pause, to reflect, to meditate. Ask yourself questions like this when you read the Psalms. Has God ever made a promise that he's not kept? And then, not just the quick Christian answer. No, God keeps all his promises. Seriously, think about it. Meditate. Can you think of a single promise that you can go into the scriptures and say, 
God promised that, and he didn't keep it. That would be a good exercise, wouldn't it? The words of the Lord prove true. So let's start in Genesis, and let's move all the way to the end of the Bible. And then as an exercise, keep reading and asking, did that come true? Did that come true? Seems like time and time again, God's word is trustworthy. And therefore, if you understand God's ways, his words, his promises to be perfect, that they never let you down, I think you might be tempted to praise. Not just casually or nonchalantly, passionately praise the Lord. In other words, to the degree to which you understand the surety of God's precious promises, will be to the degree that you passionately praise him. Brothers and sisters, read Psalm 18. Think about the greater David Jesus and that wonderful line in St. Corinthians that says all the promises of God have found their yes and their amen, their truth in Jesus Christ. He has time and time again made promises and then delivered. So a couple weeks ago, I'm meeting up with a group of Judson University students, and I asked them one sentence, summarize the entire Bible. Go. Anybody feeling nervous if that was me and you right now? One sentence, summarize the entire Bible. And we had a great discussion, and they did an excellent job. Here's what I suggested for their help. The Old Testament is God making promises. The New Testament is God fulfilling his promises through Jesus. The end. Do you know that? Do you know that the whole Bible is a story about the perfection of God's words and his ways through his promises and that he has made promise after promise in the Old Testament and Jesus delivers time after time. Oh, my hope and prayer is that if you do not know God in this way, that you will come to know his passionate, promise-keeping love for you so that you, in result, would be a passionate praiser of him. If you want a specific application to know more about the heart of God and his love towards sinners, please join us in our gentle and lowly study on Saturdays, 9 a.m., If you can't make it at 9 a.m., grab the free book that's in the hallway. We got a whole bunch of them. And read about God's heart towards sinners and his promise-keeping love. Third and finally, David is passionately praising God because of his receiving of deliverance and because of God's protection because of God's perfection, because of his promises. We've been looking at these three Ps, perfection, promises. And so I want to just give one final introductory comment about David's specific, unique protection. Because it's here in our psalm, in Psalm 18, that the heading, the first few lines that I read to you that were all caps, said that these are the words that he sang to the Lord when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies. And we saw in verse 30, the key verse, that he is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. And one way to read this psalm is to notice the key word rock. Rock. Did you notice it in verse 1? I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock 
and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. Then what I said, verse 30 is the key verse, and it says, he is a shield for those who take refuge in him. But then look at 31. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? And then the last section, verse 46, the Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation. I think we should see that this psalm is structured by rock in the beginning, rock in the middle, and rock toward the end, because the introduction tells us that David wrote this while he was delivered from Saul. And guess where he was? In a rock. Ah, see, that makes sense. In 1 Samuel 23, I'm just going to read it to you. 1 Samuel 23, here's the story when David was saved and delivered by God on this specific occasion. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Moan, in the Arabah of the south of Jeshimon, and Saul and his men went to seek him to kill him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock, and he lived in the wilderness of Moan. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men went on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. Does Psalm 18 make a little more sense now? But here's the interesting thing. David's language of deliverance in sections B and B, the deliverance protection section, it does not sound like that at all. So David goes into a cave in a mountain, and then he's being pursued by Saul and his soldiers, and he's about to die. They're closing in, feel the music rising, the tension mounting, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, some messenger comes and says, hey, Saul, they're about to destroy raid our land. We need to go fight. Oh, okay. Change plans. Let's go. That's how he was delivered from Saul in that moment in the rock. It sounds so ordinary, doesn't it? Then you read Psalm 18 and you're like, whoa, God. I mean, read it. The language is emphatically hyperbolic compared to the actual story of David's deliverance in the rock. Perhaps that's a good lesson for us. Perhaps what we find in David's language when you do the deep dive study of this psalm is that he is using language of previous acts of salvation and applying it to his moment of salvation. Perhaps you should understand that the book of Exodus and the drawing out of the waters and the chaotic waters that they parted through the Red Sea and then were led to the mountain and there was fire coming out of God's nostrils and lightning everywhere. It's Exodus overtones all over the place in Psalm 18. Why? Because that was the salvation event for all of Israel. So the king who is being saved is saying, this is not just my salvation, this is our salvation. Because this is our God, the rock who saves. Do you, do you get the idea? that perhaps David is so saturated with the stories of God's deliverance from the people out of Egypt, 
out of bondage, out of slavery. This is who our God is. He promised to Abraham that we would come out 400 years later and he delivered that promise. Yes, I love you, Lord. Does that make sense? That David would passionately praise God and do so with such hyperbolic, magnum opus, artistic language because God has done an amazing thing to his people, to the king, and ultimately to the rest of the world. If you come back next week, you will find that it is not just David who is saved and delivered, but the whole world, including you and me, that we find protection from all of our enemies, those that are inside and outside through the rock that is Jesus Christ, the greater David. Did you notice the way verse 50, the way the psalm ends? Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. It would be very easy to read Psalm 18 and just go, well, that's great. It's good for David. What about me? I'm not David. I'm not from David's family. I'm not an Israelite. David's not my king. I live in the United States of America in the Chicago suburbs. Great salvation he brings to his king, to his anointed, to David, to his offspring. It's not going to lead me to passionate praise. Unless unless this promise was not fully fulfilled when he saved David from Saul. And perhaps in Romans chapter 15, as we will look at, Lord willing, next week, come back, listen to this. Romans 15, 8 and 9. For I tell you that Jesus Christ became the servant to the Lord. The servant of the Lord that's referenced in the beginning of our psalm, servant of the Lord, we'll hit that next week. But he became the servant of the Lord to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm God's promises that was given to Abraham and the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles would glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Paul says. And then he quotes Psalm 18. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Jesus became the servant of the Lord as one of David's offspring to show the promises of God being confirmed as perfect. And therefore, through Jesus Christ, the rock of the church, the rock of salvation, brought a greater salvation for you and I to take refuge in him because he, in fact, was perfect to the very end of his life. He, the perfect and righteous one, blameless in all that he ever said, thought, and did, died in our place on a cross so that you and I who are unrighteous, who are not blameless, who are not perfect, that do not deserve God's kindness and salvation can be saved through our faith. Just like that woman saw, my sins are many, but my Savior forgives them all. And that will lead us and all of the nations to passionate praise. But more on that next week. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do want to praise you, praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus, and ask for the Spirit of God to pour out upon us love. Our main request in prayer is that we would love you with all of our heart, all of our mind, soul, and strength, and that we would love our neighbor as ourself, and that we would be supremely growing and being defined as a community as those who love one another. And so, Father, we're praying that that would be produced in us by your Spirit 
precisely because we have fixed our eyes upon Jesus and saw how great of a Savior he is, how amazing our salvation and deliverance has been offered to us, undeserving that we are. So I pray, Father, that if there's anyone in this room that has neglected to see the greatness of the salvation, that today would be a day for them to understand afresh or for the first time why it is that God in Christ has saved sinners like us. Not just the world broadly, but me. Lead some of us to say, he saved me, the way David says in Psalm 18. And then I pray, Father, for the members, regular attenders, those that are regularly coming to Embassy Church, that our love would flourish on the basis of what Christ is doing in and through us. Finish the good work that you have already begun in us. In Jesus' name, amen.